Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Hi, everyone. This is Erica Adler, and this is the Health Law Hotspot. I am the shareholder from Retzel and Andrus. I lead the healthcare department. And today I'm joined by Christina Kuda, who's also an invaluable member of our healthcare department, and our special guest, Catherine O'Daniel from the law office of Catherine O'Daniel. Catherine practices in Chicago and is a criminal lawyer who's been practicing for over 25 years. She focuses on criminal defense and appeals and has tried numerous cases to verdict in state and federal courts across the country. In particular, Catherine has represented several high-profile clients, including physicians, which is of key importance to us today, as well as politicians, athletes, businessmen, attorneys, and others. A leading lawyers has named Catherine one of the Illinois' top 10 leading female criminal defense attorneys. And we are very excited to have Catherine with us today, and we've had the pleasure of working with her as well. So we wanted to share um, her with you and uh, kind of have her impart some advice that we wish our physicians knew. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So why don't we start off with you just telling us a little bit about situations that you find yourself facing that involve physicians, dentists, other healthcare providers, and that will get us started. Okay, sure. Uh, well, I had a recent uh, matter here in Chicago in federal court, where I was contacted by a psychiatry practice group. And that psychiatry practice group had unwittingly hired someone who was completely uncredentialed and unqualified, who had falsified all of his credentials, and including uh, he obtained a DEA number. So he wow. was writing prescriptions for people. The irony was he was uh, really good at, at the fraud. And he had the highest patient retention rate <laughs> within that practice. And people were coming in, pouring their hearts out to him, and they were leaving with prescriptions for narcotics. So this talk about the blending of civil and criminal problems, um, we were able to keep that a civil situation. And we uh, immediately um, did a, a complete lockdown of that practice and wow. a total compliance review. Right. And of course the federal government charged the fake doctor and, uh, just an irony, uh, jury selection happened in late October and oh. the opening statements happened on Halloween and the prosecutor <laughs> got up there and said, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, here we are on Halloween. This is the day where we dress up as people that were not. And then he wow. pointed right to the defendant and off it went. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the sentence for that was, was somewhere around 12 to 15 years. And thankfully, wow. no one was hurt and the practice was never charged. They were sued civilly, um, but they were never charged. So how, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about how somebody was able to get away with that? Because I think Christina and I are both somewhat freaked out <laughs> by, yeah. and I, I'm sure you know, did they just not even do the most basic background checks or how did it happen? They did. They did a pretty decent job of background checks. Um, he falsified all the credentials and for him to have pulled it over on DEA to the point where they issued that's, him that's a prescription number, masterful fraudster. 
Wow. So, Super yeah. intelligent. DEA yes. does check. We know that. And they yes, we do. Did. To pull that's that really off crazy. on DEA is big. Well, that's interesting. You know, Christina, you remember, and I've mentioned this before in other podcasts, there was a, uh, a news story, I want to say out of Florida, where some university issued these, um, uh, what do you call them, diplomas to uh, about 2,500, or maybe it was even more uh, individuals. They were fake nursing school diplomas. Those people went on to sit for the nursing exam yes. and get licensed and start working. Um, so it's it's kind of similar. Also, they nobody picked up on it, and some of those people are still out there. And they also managed to actually pass the licensing exam, which is interesting as well. Yeah. But um, so this is that's I mean that's a really unusual case, I would guess, for well, your experience, right? Yes. Wow. That's really Thank goodness. You have to be pretty bold to decide to fake a medical career. That involves a lot of knowledge and uh, you know a lot of skill. So, right. And he, like bold. I said, he was so good. Patients were devastated when they found out that the doctor was no longer in house there. Wow. <laughs> so, um, you know where they might have have been assisted um, would have been maybe some tighter compliance. But in the aftermath of that, that place is rock solid. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, are there any other other instances that you can kind of think of where uh, a healthcare provider might need your services, like an, an indictment, or if there's some concern that something they've done could lead to criminal penalties? Um, you know, when can you think that a, a criminal attorney might be important to a healthcare provider? Well, it, it can it can happen in a number of ways. An indictment is a rock solid example. Obviously, they're going to need some assistance navigating uh, the federal government, which is they are a, a really uh, tough opponent and they are aggressive prosecutors. But more in your world, um, when compliance processes reveal some violations that can potentially be criminal, I think it's best practices to get a criminal defense lawyer involved. Um, even when complying with the CID or complying with uh, a subpoena, especially if you get a grand jury subpoena and you're notified that a federal criminal investigation is underway, you absolutely need uh, effective criminal representation, somebody who's got a lot of experience. Sure. And speaking of CIDs or civil investigative demands, similar to subpoenas, um, you know, we've had clients, Erica and I, that, um, you know, have, have received those, and generally they say, we want documents from this time period, and these are the kind of documents we want to see, and sometimes they'll come with interrogatories, they'll ask specific questions they want answered to. Um, if uh, a healthcare provider goes and gets served with a CID or a subpoena that is asking for records or asking to answer questions, what are some best practices you would recommend they do at that point to sort of respond to that and um, you know make sure that they're doing things properly? Well, backtracking a little bit, uh, the first thing to do is, is get counsel, obviously. Um, and if they're served and the agent or agents come in and they start asking for documents, the very first thing that the practice should do is politely decline and say, we'll accept the service uh, we're not going to answer any questions at this time. We'd like to, to operate through counsel. We have retained counsel and we will get back to you. Um, counsel should reach out immediately to the government and should try to figure out if that physician or that group is being targeted criminally. Uh, another thing that's 
really standard practice is to try and get an extension on any subpoena or on any CID because taking, you know, these are comprehensive and they're usually not for a period of months. They, they cover years and thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. And those, in my view, should never just be blindly produced. They need to be reviewed by lawyers, by healthcare mm-hmm. lawyers, and sometimes by criminal defense lawyers. I, I think sometimes, Christine, our clients have thought that being friendly and showing themselves as have nothing to hide is, you know, going to protect them. And so a lot of our clients think, oh, I'll just sit down. You know, I didn't do anything wrong. Or we had a client once uh, who gave like a tour of his facility and they hung out there. The, you know, investigators or whatever it was hung out for three hours or so. And then he called us afterwards and he was like, oh, they were nice guys. I gave them a tour. I showed them around. Uh, You know, we didn't even know what to say at that point. Right. But um, I think they're not your friend, obviously. Um, And I think sometimes our, 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 providers are, you know, too friendly. Yeah, I think that's a real danger. Another thing, um, I've had clients say to me, you know, I kind of told a white lie. Well, in federal court, there is no such thing as a white lie. A lie is a lie. And that is, is its own separate crime. Even if the investigation doesn't, you know, bear fruit, and you're not charged criminally for any healthcare or fraud violation, um, you know, a, a false statement is a false statement. It can be devastating and career-ending. Yeah, and it may be unknowing. You may think, you know, in the moment you get nervous. That's another reason why we always say, if someone comes in for investigation, tell them politely, you know, I'm, I'm happy to discuss this with you, but I do have legal counsel. I'd like them to reach out to you. Because I think when the FBI knocks at your door, anyone would be frazzled and you're apt to sort of uh, maybe say things without thinking or things that you normally wouldn't say because you're so nervous. And unfortunately, they listen to everything you say. So anything that you do say, you know, can be something that they they bring up later, especially if it wasn't necessarily an appropriate um, response. One of the things that I've run into, Catherine, and I would like to get your opinion on this, is um, I'll find out a client was subpoenaed or received a CID and that they've told about 14 people this happened. They've told all their employees who have no reason to know about this. They've told other colleagues, they've told family and friends. And my advice always is be quiet, tell your advisors, legal counsels, if you need a financial advisor, only tell people who are on a need to know basis what's going on. Um, do you think that's, that's something that is important for providers to, to follow? Absolutely, less is more. And I think it's important that the wagons get circled. These are very serious matters. Even when they don't wind up in a, you know, in a criminal posture, we've been very successful keeping them on the civil side of things. Um, and, and part of that, I think, is, is true, Christina, because the more people you talk to about it, the larger the, the pond of witnesses potentially is. And so I think it's just a, a smarter idea to keep it as close and private as you can. Absolutely. Um, so we did talk a little bit about, again, when someone shows up at a, at a healthcare provider's door. Um, and one of the things that we've had happen before is, and you touched on this a little bit, is if somebody comes in as an investigator and they show badges and they want to look through your documents, so they want to look through your office, 
Uh, one of the things you always should see is do they have a legal warrant to do that? Or are they just asking? A lot of people think when an investigator says, I'm here to look through your documents, you have to allow them to do that. And that is not necessarily the case, correct? It is not the case. If they don't have a warrant, they are not entitled to go rooting through your offices and taking things. For them to do the dramatic, invasive measure of coming in there and taking things, uh, that requires a search warrant. Right. And and even if they do have a search warrant, it may be very limited too, right? Like, so maybe they're allowed to look in your desk, but they're not allowed to seize your computer or, you know, vice versa, right? So, um, Correct. They, so you actually need to look at it and see what it says, uh, which can be overwhelming in the minute, in the moment. I mean, it's to have, you know, people show up with guns and whatnot at your door and to have the, you know, the clarity of mind to look carefully at that document is, you know. Well, that's hard to do. That, Erica, back to that first example where we started at the psychiatry practice, they came in like stormtroopers. <laughs> they raided that place. And I always felt so terribly for the patients that were there suffering from mental health issues, <laughs> crisis, and here come all these agents. So that's a really dramatic example, but the, it, 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 you know, makes the point that when that happens, first thing you do is stop and take a breath. You know, the, the reactive things when we're in crisis and we're in, you know, kind of fight or flight mode is when we are the most apt to make bad decisions and big mistakes. Makes sense. So we're really kind of talking about, you know, uh, criminal type stuff here, I think. Do they show up in your office if it's just a civil matter or we are these, it's more a criminal nature where they would show up at your door? Well, you know, sometimes as the investigation begins, they don't know what they're dealing with. They don't know if it's criminal. They're trained to, to suspect it is. They will always begin through that lens. Um, but sometimes on the, for false claims act cases, um, they'll show up and they will, they will serve the CID or they'll serve the grand jury subpoena and not know exactly what they have yet. Yeah, and I mean, I've th there's been instances that I've been involved with where someone will say, I'll talk to an AUSA, assistant US attorney, and they'll say, well, this is a civil matter. And I know that, but then I start looking at documents in response to a subpoena, and I see things that tell me, wait a minute, there's issues here that could turn criminal. And I'm not sure if the AUSA is going to discover that, if they wanna go down that road, I don't know. But if I know that, or there's a law, let's say, you know, a lot of times people might violate kickback laws, um, the anti-kickback statute. Anti-kickback statute has civil and criminal penalties. So just because you're being told, you know, as a provider, well, we're looking at this from a, a civil lens at this point, doesn't mean it's going to remain a civil lens, which I think it, it's always important depending on what the allegations are, or depending what kind of questions you're being asked in a subpoena or interrogatories that you consider if the potential penalty could be criminal, even if you're being told we're not looking at criminal now, 
it's always a good idea to have a criminal attorney involved. I think um, because you then can sort of assess the likelihood it could be criminal. Also, you can be responding and preparing for what might happen if it does turn criminal. Responding to something that's purely civil in nature is, is different in some respects than responding to something that's criminal in nature. And I think it's important to have both those sort of focuses when you're looking at a potential, a potential issue that has criminal implications. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And you and I, Christina, have had some overlap with this very with this very situation. Um, and we've worked on a couple of matters, one of which could so easily have crossed that bridge into the criminal realm. Um, and so I think, you know, knowledge is power. And if you get in front of it, you are in such a much better position. Um, and there are ways to try to mitigate down because, you know, all these fraud offenses are intent driven. You can't accidentally commit a, a, a criminal, federal criminal fraud. And so if you can get out in front of them and try and maybe show the U.S. Attorney's Office, look, this is an area that is hardly a model of clarity. These regulations are very difficult. There's conflicting advice out there. And this practice group is a group that is compliance um, friendly. These people have a long history of trying to understand these regulations. And it's labyrinthine, you know, trying to navigate Medicare and all, all that other, um, those types of regulations can be tricky. And so if you have forewarning that it's coming and you can begin trying to craft a defense to show that this was not intentional, um, that's really, really helpful. And it's a position of strength. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the government's position, I think always is very strong. It's black and white, you did it, and this is wrong, and this is going to be the penalty. But, you know, as you just indicated, that's not always the case. There's a lot of gray, particularly in healthcare laws. There's not always a lot of guidance or, you know, guidance that's um, interpreted one way in one area and another way in another area. So to the extent you have, uh, you know, representation that helps you put together sort of these mitigating factors in advance, it really helps the, the government and the government's attorneys to say, hey, um, you know, maybe this isn't as black and white as we thought, and maybe it's not worth it for us to try to go down the criminal road to make that claim because they've brought up 10 points on their side that are actually pretty good points. And, you know, my experience, although I'm not a, a criminal attorney, is the government doesn't like to bring cases they don't really think they absolutely can win. So I feel like if you can show mitigation and you can show them there's a way here that you might not win, it minimizes the likelihood that they'll bring that case. That's exactly right, because they don't want it unless it has a bow on it and they have nothing but resources to throw at it. And if you can convince them that it is a defensible case before a jury on the criminal side, then it's very likely that you can keep it. I always tell clients, you want to keep it a checkbook problem, not a handcuffs problem. Um, and, and that's a really effective way of doing it. And plus, I always take those opportunities to tell the U.S. Attorney's Office, this is who this person is. Here's their personal backstory. This is a person that's worthy of a little bit of grace because of their life circumstances or the incredible services that they provide to the community, and that this is a one-off. You know, hopefully it's a one-off, and this is an area that's, like I said, hard to navigate even for the most well-intended professionals. Absolutely. Um, 
if someone finds themselves in potentially the need for a, a criminal attorney, a healthcare provider, what are some things you would suggest they look for when selecting a criminal attorney to assist them? Are there certain characteristics or certain points they should be looking at? I think it's valuable to find someone who's got a lot of experience, obviously. Um, and you want someone who is a federal practitioner because most of these laws are, are federal laws. You want someone who has a long and positive history negotiating with the U.S. Attorney's Office. And you want someone who knows how to try a case, who knows exactly what on the on the criminal side, because that's what the, the these physicians and these practice groups they are human beings who want to know that same question that everybody who walks through my door is wants to know, you know, am I looking at time? Am I looking at prison here? And so you want someone who knows how to try these cases, knows what the issues are, so that when navigating it and hopefully keeping it on the civil side, um, you can also prepare a defense if, if it does happen that it's going to head on to the other side, which is the, the criminal side. Very good points. And I think, too, in my experience in working with clients who have had criminal matters, the only other thing I would add is I think it helps if when you're working with a criminal attorney that they are willing to sort of work with attorneys, you know, like Eric and I that work on the civil end, but really understand sort of the subtle nuances of all the healthcare laws and what can be done and what can't be done. I think it's a good partnership. That way, um, it's sort of a, a mutual education between the lawyers to come to best uh, best practices and best outcomes for that client. A hundred percent agree. I don't think the criminal, the, the criminal lawyers are great at the courtroom stuff and preparing for the courtroom stuff, but absolutely there needs to be that partnership with a healthcare lawyer, a healthcare law firm that knows what it's doing and has tons of experience and great professionals who understand those regulations. Right. I would think, you know, you can't be somebody, it's got to be somebody with quite a lot of experience in healthcare. Somebody who did one case once is not an expert in the area, right? And, um, you know, somebody who does lots of different areas and is happy to do this one because it can't be that different, right, is not going to be the right fit. It is such a specialized area. And if you're not in front of someone who has a lot of experience with healthcare, these laws have been around a while, but there's always cases coming down. And, you know, that experience is so important. If you choose the wrong criminal lawyer, um, and I, I think we kind of touched upon this, how, you know, you try and work to prevent something from becoming criminal, to keep it very civil. But if somebody doesn't know the nuances of these healthcare laws, and is not able to achieve that for their client or doesn't even know that's a possibility, you know, then they have struck out in terms of their lawyer choice. So um, that's so important. And I think sometimes people just assume criminal lawyers are criminal lawyers, right? You got arrested, uh, you know, driving, you know, for DUI or, or selling drugs and, and I got arrested because I paid a kickback. Like, well, those are all criminal, right? No, they're not, right? So, uh, but the average person doesn't necessarily understand that there's within criminal law, like little sub specialties and you need to find that one. And, um, you know, I think it's great to introduce you to everybody listening to this um, because so often our clients end up with, a friend who does criminal law or somebody their buddy recommended, et cetera. And they don't know how the outcome might've been different if they had just, you know, asked the right questions. Correct. It's kind of like saying, well, I need a civil lawyer. Okay. You know, that's, <laughs> that's your guy's realm. And within civil, there are a myriad of subspecialties and with healthcare, especially, 
you have to have the right law firm. And so the same thing applies with, with a criminal defense lawyer. It's not now, one fits fits all. Will you get, I mean, we work on license issues as well for our, our doctors. When you're working with doctors, um, do you kind of, how does that fit the criminal or civil investigation fit with their ability to keep practicing and their loss of license? Can you just speak to that? Does one always mean the other? Are you able to navigate around that? Well, you know, the licensing bodies are different from the, the courthouses, you know, right. they're their own sub subspecialty. I have worked with them. I have done both the criminal side and the licensing side. Um, I generally will refer that out to someone who is a specialist. And here we are again, talking about subspecialties. Um, and so you, you definitely need someone will, who will help you, who is well-respected right. in that area. Yeah. Are you able to somewhat negotiate? Like if you're working out a settlement, can the settlement be, we, you know, the doctor owes money, but he's not going to lose his license or it's only going to be suspended for X amount of time. Is that part of what you work with when you're negotiating these? Or is that where that other person needs to come in? A, a little bit of both. I have done that. I represented a doctor who was elderly and his prescription pad was, you know, taken for a, a ride. And, uh, there were a bunch of pharmacy shopping individuals that crossed his path and he was practicing about 10, 15 years behind the standard of care was a lovely, nice man. He was a military doctor. He was a, a great practitioner. He just needed to have retired a few years back. Um, and unfortunately a few people died during that whole episode. I was able to, uh, keep that a misdemeanor. And I was able to surrender his license. And he was in his 80s anyway. Um, so sometimes that is in play where you can, it, it can be a, a negotiation point. That makes sense. No. All right. Well, I think this has been a great topic. Any final thoughts you want to share about criminal law and what you wish our listeners knew? Well, what I wish they would do is ask first. Don't, uh, you know, don't leap before you look. And if they're in doubt, uh, you, you know, oftentimes doctors will be in doubt and then the CID or the subpoena will come along and there will be something the government can point to, to show you were aware you did know. And so I wish they would at the first moment that they think, I wonder if this is right. I wonder if this is okay. Reach out for help. You know, you could start with a civil firm and uh, like your firm, start there and, and ask the civil uh, healthcare lawyers opinion of this, but if it seems like it's something that's not right, you need to get somebody involved right away because there are all kinds of like a disease. If you catch it early, you know, it's treatable. Um, but if you let it, if you let it go, sometimes the consequences are pretty dire. Great advice. Well, thank you, Catherine, for joining us and we will Having be me. sharing your information. So anybody who has questions can follow up with you directly. And thanks always to Christina. And if anybody has questions about the work that Catherine and Christina do with helping clients in healthcare, criminally, civilly, we hope you'll reach out. And we thank you for joining us at the Health Law Hotspot. You can catch some of our other episodes at ralaw.com. We'll see you next time. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. 
The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.